Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out this episode of Group Thinkers. I'm your host, Justin McCord. Uh, we're in a special series right now of Group Thinkers where we're talking about and thinking about COVID-19 uh, and bringing you updates and perspectives on what's happening with the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the nonprofit marketing space. Uh, a, a few months back, I had reached out to uh, Tom Harrison, the former CEO of Russ Reed and um, had connected with him, had met him uh, a handful of times and spent time with him at various conferences. And uh, as he had retired, I, I was curious about his perspective and lessons learned. And, uh, and so he and I connected and had scheduled time. And then lo and behold, this whole COVID-19 thing happens. Uh, and it just so happens that his lessons learned may be more relevant now than ever. So in this episode, uh, Tom Harrison is going to share some of his perspectives on the current environment and the impact on the nonprofit marketing space, but also on the larger impact uh, and lessons that he learned over his 35 years in the nonprofit marketing space and even some on the commercial side. So uh, appreciate you checking out this episode. Be sure to connect with us uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GroupThinkers. Uh, also want to make sure that you're aware of a resources page that RKD Group has put out. You can go to rkdgroup.com and there should be a little pop-up. If not, there's a, a navigation under the blog to get to a COVID-19 response resources page. So uh, be sure to check that out and we will continue to bring you um, perspectives on uh, what's happening in the market. But for now... Here is Tom Harrison on Group Thinkers. So, Tom, it's uh, uh, it's it's good to chat with you, uh, and and I'm excited to to be able to talk with you today, both about um, our current environment in the nonprofit space, in you know the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, but also some of the lessons that you've learned over your, uh, your career. So, um, so thank you so much for, for making time. Uh, I would love it if you would start and just share a little bit of your journey uh, through uh, the, your time, both uh, Russ Reed and, and just, uh, you, just your path uh, as a part of your career. Yeah, I spent 10 years with a large international public relations firm called Edelman Worldwide. And our clients were the biggest corporations around the world. And it was just terrific background to learn communications, how to tell stories, uh, how to do marketing. And in the process, I got a phone call from Russ Reed. And I'd never heard of this uh, firm because I came from the, the corporate world. And they were having a challenge in 1984. There was a famine in Ethiopia, and they couldn't raise money for the famine because nobody knew there was a famine. And so they actually reached out to us and, and hired us at Edelman to help them tell the story through the news media so that when people got their direct mail, they'd say, oh, I heard about this famine. It was on the news. Hmm. And they found that many more people gave. And in the process of doing that, I just found great significance in the nonprofit sector. Hmm. And so to, to my surprise, and I think to Russ's surprise, and 
settlement surprise, <laughs> kind of after working together for about a year and a half, um, I thought, this is really remarkable. And Russ asked me if I wanted to join them. And my first reaction was, no, I, I work for this multinational giant corporation and you got 50 people in Pasadena helping charities. Yeah. I, I don't even know how to approach that. And uh, upon further reflection about what I want to do with my life, I decided, you know, I think I'm going to actually do that. Wow. And I went over and joined them, uh, joined Russ Reed in 1985 and had 30 remarkable years of helping some of the greatest people and the greatest nonprofits in the world grow. And so I really counted a privilege. I learned a great deal from Edelman and it positioned me to be able to do all this. Uh, and then Russ opened a door that has been very meaningful. And even now that I'm, I've been retired for four years, I still have uh, a heart for the industry and friends in the nonprofit sector so that I'm still staying engaged. Yeah, and and uh, while you may be officially retired, you are very much still engaged, and uh, I, that's great for folks like me who are uh, still, you know, in the early part of the career in the space. I've got you know almost ten years in the space now, and uh, to be able to draw from the likes of of you and from Tim Kirsten and and others is. Uh, it's really a blessing for us because you you have walked through so many different moments and chapters and not just on the big scale, but also on the small scale of communicating with, uh, with each other as individuals, right? From the marketing firm side to the client side and, and how all of that works and, and can work really well. So um, it's funny that you, you mentioned Tim uh, and Tim and I have been friends for decades. Uh, I just think the world of him. And he told me long ago that the reason that he got into the nonprofit sector was that he read an article in the Wittenberg door about a fellow named Russ Reed. Mm -hmm. And it just seems so funny that both of us came from different places in our lives. And because of this one man and how he inspired us, yeah. uh, we both came in and got a chance to make a difference with our lives. And, and that ability to make a difference is, um, that's such a, a factor across the sector and particularly on the, uh, on the vendor or partner side. Uh, this is a sector that's far more collegial than, than any other that I've found, right? So, you know, we, we may compete against each other in some ways or in, in pitching business and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day and at conferences and whatnot, you can, real, you can really feel a sense of camaraderie amongst uh, everyone in the space to do good. And that's, that's, uh, that's telling, I think. You're, you're exactly right. And I see it on the nonprofit side. It, it's so blatant there. You know, when you're on the corporate side, the people from Pepsi and the people from Coke don't like each other. Right. Right. I was a guy, a guy from, uh, I was doing work for Fuji film um, for the Fuji Olympics in 1984. And a guy from Kodak, came up to one of our people from Fuji at an industry event and said, we will bury you. <laughs> you know, they, they just can't stand each other. Whereas in the nonprofit side, um, I can remember sitting down where all, all the child sponsorship agencies who clearly compete with each other, mm -hmm. would get together once a year and say, well, what's working? What's not working? And, right. you know, and it reminds me of, of a, a client that was at the Los Angeles Mission, mm -hmm. uh, who was one of the founders there, Mark Holsinger, great guy. 
and we, we we were working with them for years. And other nonprofit, other rescue missions came to us and said, "We help us." And we said, "Well, I, I don't think we can. I, we have a mission. Mm -hmm. How can we work for two? Mm -hmm. And so we went we went to the head of the Los Angeles mission and said, "This is a strange thing, but these missions in other cities are calling us to do work. But we, you know, we do work. You're our client." And he said, "I believe there are enough." poor people to go around for all of us. Why don't you help them? <laughs> it's and, true. And it's just a different approach than you see on the corporate side. And it's yeah. one of the things that I love about the nonprofit sector. Yeah. Uh, whenever you and I spoke last week and uh, kind of wrapping our arms around our chat today, one of the things that we talked about was uh, the current environment and the impact of COVID-19. And we can't ignore it. Uh, you have walked through uh, multiple crisis moments and uh, and how they impact the nonprofit landscape from natural disasters like Hurricane Hurricane Sandy and uh, you know whether or not that's Katrina etc. Also economic uh, crisis moments and so uh, I'm curious what your perspective is on the current environment and the eventual impact of COVID nineteen. Some of the crises that I've had to walk through have been self-inflicted, uh, and those are even harder to deal with. This COVID-19, the coronavirus, this is uh, not self-inflicted. It's mm -hmm. happening to us. And I see nonprofits impacted far more than the general news media are talking about. I mean, from the program side, just start there. We've got nonprofit organizations who are, in fact, on the front lines of tackling the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Health organizations, universities, some of the relief and development organizations. So they were busy before COVID-19 happened. And now they're doing this too. So they need more help, more volunteers in some cases, certainly more financing than ever before. So there's some stress on those folks. Then the second thing would be the increased demand for services among nonprofit organizations. Think about food banks. They're going to be delivering far more food. How about Meals on Wheels for seniors? This is a crisis. We're going to need their help more than ever. They're going to need more support financially and volunteers at a time when it's hard to get volunteers. Or the Salvation Army or rescue missions or hospitals, they need more financial support than ever before. So on the program side, there's a huge issue going on. Mm -hmm. Then we've got some nonprofits who can't even conduct their program. I mean, if you have an art school or if you're the local opera or a theater group or a senior center, or if you're Make-A-Wish, or you're the Scouts, or Big Brother, Big Sister, if you adopt pets out, you can't do that if your doors are closed. And in yeah. many states around the country, the doors are closed. So Habitat for Humanity can't bring volunteers together to build a house. Special Olympics has to cancel their games. This impacts them financially, but it also impacts them from a program perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's just the immediate and so right now we're in this, this program impact and, and there will be in, in many ways an economic impact that uh, will have reach into the nonprofit space that, um, that we'll have to continue to navigate. And, and I guess I'm, I'm encouraged by um, our sector's ability to innovate and uh, yeah. knowing that there is going to be a, there's already, but there is a coming great need for innovation in how we talk about what we do and then how we relate that to people who will support us financially and with their time and their talents. 
Well, that's right, Justin. And I was talking about the program side. If you think about the revenue side, hmm. if you rely on face-to-face -face fundraising, um, you have a challenge right now because certainly that channel is on hold. Mm -hmm. uh, if you raise a lot of money through annual gamas or banquets, you can't bring people together to do that anymore. And then if you think about the huge fundraising channel of special events like walkathons and any kind of special event that raises money where you're, you know, for Coleman or for ACS or for St. Jude, mm -hmm. they're doing this every week of the year. Those are all on hold. You're not able to do those anymore. Yeah. So because of the virus, it's going to impact the channels that you use to raise money. And then if you look beyond the virus, we get, we're talking about the virus, but what about the response to the virus? There's yeah. a pandemic and then there's the panic over the pandemic, mm -hmm. which has caused the stock market to drop. So, you know, I, I've heard numbers that suggest that 2% of Americans who get the virus will die. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's horrific. It is. 100% of Americans have just watched a third of their life savings, their 401k, their retirement, their kids' 529 plan disappear because of the panic in the stock market. Yeah. Now, clearly, I believe, we've seen this before. You talked about life experience. We've all seen this before. I believe that the stock market will recover and bounce back. But for now, people are scared financially. Even if they don't have a lot of money in the stock market, they see the headlines and they're scared. Yeah. And so because they're scared, it's going to impact giving. I think if you slice up the giving in, in, in a number of different ways, this is a terrible time for major donors. Mm -hmm. You sure wouldn't want to be launching a capital campaign right now. Right. People can't get gifts of appreciated property if the property hasn't appreciated. Mm -hmm. So that really has a dramatic impact on major donors. The other thing that happens when the stock market goes down precipitously, and we saw this in 1987, we saw it after 9-11, we saw it in 2008. We even saw it just a year ago in December of 2018 where the stock market dropped Mm -hmm. The last two weeks of the year, and year-end giving stopped. Yeah. Then the stock market came back up, and the giving came back up. Some people suggest that this was about the tax law, and I think there are a lot of things that need to be changed about the tax law, but it wasn't the tax law. Right. It was primarily this financial insecurity, at least from my perspective. So what we find is people are much less likely to take on a new charity, to give to a new organization as good as they are, uh, they're a little reluctant to do, take on an extra financial burden when they don't know which way their financial lives are going. So that means acquisition is much harder. Yeah. So you got major gift, hard capital campaign, acquisition. Well, thank God for middle, and ma for middle donors and regular donors who will just keep giving because they're loyal. I think cultivation will be fine, but I think acquisition is going to be pretty tough. And among cultivation, of course, the monthly donors, the, the, the sustainer programs that most nonprofits have in place now uh, are going to really keep them afloat. You know, you've probably seen this too, Justin, but we see that every time there's a stock market crash like this, um, the sustainers keep the nonprofits okay. And afterwards, all the other nonprofits call and say, can you help us create a sustainer program? Because right. we never want to be without one next time. I'm going to get that. Yes. And I think that's going to be true again this time. Yeah. You know, um, a, a couple of thoughts as, as you're sharing that it does create a, a massive impact on so many facets 
of how nonprofits are going to market. I'm, I'm curious, you know, the, um, you know, because we're all in our homes, there's also the potential that, that mail and its value changes and, and increases. We have more time. Yep. And so to the extent that we can be even more tuned in to our donor base and our cultivation, uh, that the beautiful tactile nature of holding a letter means more probably this week than it did last week or two weeks ago. And so I do think that we'll see uh, an evolution of, of channels and you're right. Uh, it's only going to make acquisition uh, that much more difficult. Um, so that, that's going to be really interesting to watch and challenging to watch. And again, a, a kind of a call for, for innovation. Um, as we move out of talking about COVID-19 and think about some other lessons learned, you know, whenever you and I first started this conversation, I reached out to you and, and wanted to draw from some things that you have observed and some lessons that you've had over your, uh, I'm going to say storied career. Uh, I get to say that as the host. Uh, it would be weird. Although you can, you're welcome to say it. Um, but over your storied career, I'm curious, um, as you sit now connected, but uh, a little further back and think about your career and think about the nonprofit sector, what are some things that you have taken away that you would provide as um, notes of encouragement or as observations that uh, the space still needs to hear today? Yeah, there are a couple things, but I just want to go back to something you said that I thought was so important that people are going to be home, they're going to have more time on their hands, they're going to have direct mail in their hands, mm -hmm. they're going to get emails in their inbox that they didn't have time to read before. Mm. And I think that's really, uh, that's, that could be very positive if we make a relevant case. Yeah. And it reminds me of a lesson that we learned 10 years ago, or maybe more, I guess it was more. It was after one of the crises, I don't know if it was 2008 or 9-11, or, or I think it might have been 9-11, but Habitat said, you know what, we need to pull our mail. And, and, and they pulled their mail for two months because they just said, this doesn't seem like the right time and we'll be spending money on mail and people are thinking about something else. And afterwards, they were honest enough to say, hey, you know what happened? We, we pulled our mail and no one gave. No money came in. Yeah. You know, the Bible says he hath not because he hath not. And they yeah. didn't ask. They didn't ask. So we have to remember that even in the midst of crisis, we've got to ask. We might adjust some of our spending so that we do less acquisition and more cultivation. We might adjust the channels. That's fine, but we still have to make a relevant case to our donors all the time. Because if you have a relationship with a donor, pretend there's only one, you call them and want to find out how they're doing. Yeah. You want to tell them how you're doing. You want to tell them what's going on with the program and how they can help and, be, and how everything they've done before has made mm -hmm. a difference. So keep communicating with the donors even during difficult times. Yeah. You asked about life lessons, and one of the ones that I, I feel like, Russ Reed used to say, we don't have 50 years of experience. We have one year of experience 50 times. <laughs> because it was, it was remarkable how often we could seemingly make the same mistake and still need to learn and be reminded of things. And I think each one of us needs a, a, a note card that we put in front of us that says, I am not the audience. Because so often we get ourselves caught up in it and we think we're the audience and we aren't. So for example, you, you know, you're a young fella and your donors are mostly 60 mm -hmm. or 70. 
or 80. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to have different tastes in everything than you do. And so what's really um, important is when you're the director of development for a nonprofit and you're looking at how you want to reach out, what spokesperson do you want to use? What music do you want to use? What graphics do you want to use? What channel do you want to use? What language, what offer do you want to use? You're tempted to do something that you think is cool, mm -hmm. that your friends all think is cool. And the 65-year-old doesn't think it's cool. They don't even understand it. Yeah. So remembering who the audience is, and I guess it's important to meet the audience where they are mm -hmm. rather than where you wish they were. So know your audience, know your donor audience, do lots of research into your audience, get to know your donors and meet them where they are. Uh, I knew lots of people in the nonprofit world who would get angry at their donors because they would give to the wrong thing. Hmm. They, they give to your charity, but they wouldn't give to the offer that you know is more important. You're looking for prevention and they're looking to give to an urgent need and you get frustrated and say, why don't they give to sustainable community development instead of to, to a hungry child? Right. And my only answer to that is, it's their money. Yeah. It's their money. They've worked hard. They've done without so they could save and invest so they could have this money to give to you. They can give to whatever they want to. And it's important to meet them where they are and help them in their growth as philanthropists, as donors, but not to resent the fact that they don't give to the thing that you might like. Make sure you have an offer that they like. And Tom, just a comment on those, you know, those first two observations about um, you're not the audience and then meeting your donor where they are. It, it strikes me as you're talking about them, just how much that reflects every other relationship in your life. And, <laughs> and you know, the way that you, the way that you communicate with your partner or your children or, or somebody else special in your life, it, those same rules apply. And so, you know, whenever we start to do this in mass and scale out our efforts, we put more of ourselves into it, but we also do that in everyday life. And so I do think that that's a, it's an important call for people to reflect on. Um, it's, it's kind of the, the reverse of the golden rule, right? It's, it's truly understanding who it is that you're talking to and what it is that they care about when you're thinking about what to say to them. Yeah, exactly. Justin, you're right. I mean, give people the benefit of the doubt. Listen to them. Be with them. Respect that they've got a position too and don't just try to overwhelm them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's relationship advice, not just fundraising. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things that I've seen so many times, both on the agency side and on the nonprofit side, is that growth is vital. You're either growing or you're dying. And if you're a nonprofit CEO, grow your revenue. And if you grow your revenue, everything else will be pretty much fine. The minute you don't grow your revenue, your board has to show up and start to micromanage things. They don't want to micromanage things. They have real jobs. They have other things that they're focused on in their lives. But if you can't get the numbers right, they're going to have to step in on that. If you're the chief development officer, grow your revenue. Find ways to grow, and your boss is never going to bother you because you're the person who delivers. They'll stay off your back. Because growth allows for better employees, better technology, opportunities for the organization. And you can't cut yourself to greatness. You have to grow yourself to greatness. Mm -hmm. 
So I just have learned over and over again the importance of investing in growth strategies, investing in innovation. But investing in innovation doesn't mean throwing out everything you used to do and trying a whole bunch of new stuff. That's right. an easy way to bankrupt yourself. What you need to do is keep the trains on the track, protect your revenue stream, but invest, have a certain amount of money, a certain percentage of your revenue, that every year you're going to invest in innovation. Hmm. And that way you're going to keep trying new stuff, and the stuff that works, you're going to be able to apply to your larger program. The stuff that doesn't work, celebrate the fact that you learned something, tweak it, and try something else. Uh, I've seen too many people either do things the way they've always done them because they're afraid of change, sure. and then the market, market just leaves you in the dust. Or the opposite, they're so afraid of being left behind that they try every new thing that comes along. Don't swing before the pitch. Make sure your audience is ready for it before you do it. And the only way to do that is through wisely testing your way into growth strategies. I love that. I love that. And, and you even kind of hit on some of the things that hamper people's ability to be growth focused uh, in swinging before the pitch, right? Uh, or um, not being strategic in how you're structuring your annual strategy and your budget to allow for that innovation uh, and, and doing it smartly and wisely and not jumping full tilt into something that's unproven for you and your particular cause. Almost unrelated to that, but you just reminded me of it. Everybody knows that planned giving works. Everybody sure. knows that planned is a terrific way to generate lots of net revenue at very low cost. But most of the organizations that I talk to that don't do it say, wow, but you know, it, it takes so long for people to die. Okay, they don't really <laughs> say it that way, but that's what they need. That's the that's feeling. They yeah. There's not going to be an ROI this year. If I invest the money this year in, in, in planned giving, I might not get a return until, you know, after I don't work here anymore. And so they don't want to invest it. And you, you've got to upfront look at it and say, hmm, this is worth doing. How am I going to find the money? Well, the way you find the money is next time you get a planned gift that you hadn't planned for, next time somebody leaves you money in their will, take half of it and spend it on program. That's a wonderful thing. Take the other half of it and use it to fund your plan giving program. Yes. And if you do that on a rotating basis, on a revolving basis, you're going to have a wave going forward of tremendous revenue at very low cost. But you have to plan for success. Yeah, I think that that's such a smart uh, piece of advice for folks. Um, well, Tom, uh, you know, I, uh, I want to shift gears on you uh, and because I think the, the lessons learned are so important, but uh, as I've gotten to know you, I've also learned of some of the things that you are uh, passionate about or interested in and have a high interest in. And we share a, a love for Aaron Sorkin and particularly the West Wing. And so I'm curious, uh, you know, if there's a particular episode of the West Wing that, uh, that you're drawn to, uh, what are some of your favorites and, and some of the things that you've learned from the West Wing? Wow. Well, I, I started listening to the podcast that you recommended to me God, a year or two ago, uh -huh. um, but behind the scenes at the West Wing. Yeah. And I just terrific. I felt like it was feeding my need for all the Aaron Sorkinisms when I couldn't get them anymore from watching the TV show. Yeah. Um, but 
I, I guess what, what I'm really attracted to in that show is the relationship that people have with each other. Mm. Um, and then secondly, what, what real leadership looks like, mm. what real presidential leadership looks like. Yeah. And I, I, when, when, when President Bartlett would give speeches, man, I just, I'd be watching the TV and I'd be moved to tears. Yeah. Uh, when, when, he, when he told the story, when he, he was in front of a group of people and he, and he got the news about a, a terrible fire or a terrorist attack or something, I think it was at the University of Iowa, and it was, the, the building was on fire. Mm-hmm. And he says, the members of the swim team knew that there were people left inside, and they ran into the fire. They ran into the fire because the relationship that they had with those people was far more important than their own self-interest. And I just found that, that President Bartlett, Aaron Sorkin, had a way of, of crafting language to inspire people. Hmm. You know, there's one where, where Josh and Leo are, are talking, and I think it's that, uh, I think Leo is in trouble. And um, Josh says, I'm, I'm here for you. And it's like the guy walking down the street who falls in a hole and all these people walk by him and, and they yell down to him. They don't do anything. And his best friend comes and jumps in the pit with him. And his friend says, why did you do that? Why did you come down? Now we're both stuck down here. This isn't going to help. And the second guy says, yeah, but I've been here before and I know the way out. Yeah. And the, the value of relationship where you're going to be with somebody in their pain and, and see them through it. I, I just think it's a great show. Yeah. Well, I mean, everyone's got time on their hands uh, a little bit right now or an interest in, in watching things. And so I think that, you know, it's definitely a moment where people can go back and, and start at the beginning. And I'm with you. I'm, I'm just constantly moved by uh, and inspired by uh, things that Sorkin weaves into each episode. And so, um, yeah, the West Wing Weekly is a, a good way to watch it and listen along behind the scenes on each one. Do you have a favorite episode? I mean, you know, the um, there are so many different ones, in particular in the first four seasons where Sorkin is, is so actively involved. Um, someone's going to emergency, someone's going to jail uh, is the one that – that I love. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's got a heavy dose of Rob Lowe's character and kind of his origin story and, and backstory. And even just the way that it starts with the music of Don Henley, uh, that great song, someone's going to emergency, someone's going to jail. Mm. Uh, and throughout that entire episode, the, I, I would argue that each episode in and of itself is like music and it's great music and the way that they speak and the way that they communicate, and you're right, how it reflects on relationships and leaderships. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an annual pilgrimage for, for me to go through as much of it as I can. They truly inspire each other. You know, yeah. It's not always the president inspiring his people. Sometimes his people inspire him. You know? And that, like, there's one where he's going through all this problem, and finally at the end he goes, it's time, vacation's over. It's time to go back to work. Because people inspired him to rise to the occasion. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's 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 a it's a a wonderful, wonderful production all the way around. Well, Tom, I I really do appreciate your perspectives and you taking time to chat with me for a little bit today. And um, I I know that 
while you're not as actively engaged, that even your, uh, your still passive and semi-active engagement is so helpful to our space. So thank you for, for all that you've done and continue to do for the nonprofit sector. Justin, thank you. I guess I would finish by saying we all need to have high standards because our causes deserve nothing less. We all need to have passion for our causes because our causes deserve nothing less. And if for some reason you can't have passion for your cause, leave. Go to work for a cause that you do have passion for. Mm. But I think it's our high standards and our passion can lead the nonprofits and in doing so, lead the world to a better place. That's a great word, Tom, and uh, an appropriate way for us to wrap our time. So thanks for, for hanging out, and uh, I can't wait to catch up again down the road. Thanks, Justin. Great to be with you. Okay, so there's the chat with Tom Harrison. And um, man, we talked about a lot. We, we talked about you know the, uh, the current impact on the nonprofit marketing space. Uh, we also talked about uh, just some of those lessons learned. And again, like I said at the, in the intro, I think that there's uh, maybe more relevance now than ever on a- applying uh, the perspectives that Tom shared long-term on the today and uh, being very strategic about growth and, uh, and about uh, understanding your audience and meeting them where they are. And uh, those things are, are relevant, super relevant for us right now. Also appreciate the opportunity to talk about the West Wing. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that Tom and I have connected on. And, and, and he mentioned the, the podcast, the West Wing Weekly. So um, if you're looking for additional things to dive into, I would highly recommend the West Wing Weekly as a, uh, as a, a listening um, experience for you. So that's it for this episode. Uh, again, we'll continue to bring you uh, new and relevant perspectives over the coming days and weeks on COVID-19 and its impact on the nonprofit marketing place. Really do appreciate our Kitty group helping us put all this together. And uh, you can find more information about our Kitty group at arcadiegroup.com. Uh, be sure to throw a follow to us on Twitter and Instagram at groupthinkers. And with that, We're done with this episode, so uh, we'll see you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our production team, including the talented Ryan Mellinger for his work on mixing every episode. Also, a shout out to the content team that helps pull together research and guests. What's the marketing efforts behind Group Thinkers? Suzanne, Ronnie, and others for their work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers.